0: The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, shocked most of that country um, and pretty much all of its political observers last month when he called a snap election for the Canadian Parliament. Yes, he is allowed to do that there. He can just decide we're going to have an election. And that's what he did. On August 21st, he decided that the election season in Canada would begin right then at that moment. And in doing so, he immediately started the clock on what has already become a really bruising campaign cycle. Up in the Great White North. And voters are going to go to the polls to decide who the next Canadian Prime Minister is in just about 10 days. Yes, just about 10 days. If that sounded weird, it's because to us it probably is, but it's right. The entire election season in Canada began on August 21st and will end On September 20th. Could you imagine that happening here? I mean, only one month of political campaign ads? That would be incredible. But nope, 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 not here in America. We don't do that. Here in America, we seem to pride ourselves on a uniquely American phenomenon, the never-ending campaign cycle. We finish one election, and then as soon as it's over, we seem to start another one. And it's just over one year now until the 2020 midterms. So the cycle continues, even though we just finished a horribly bruising one. We're already into another one. Already pollsters are in the field. They're placing bets on who the 2022 Senate and House races will be won by. And a whole bunch of senators and representatives have already announced their retirements ahead of 2022. But there's already no lack of aspiring senators and representatives who are hoping to take those seats. But in Wisconsin, it's especially hot and heavy. Um, That's a state where Donald Trump won in 2016, but Joe Biden won in 2020. And the sitting senator there, Ron Johnson, hasn't even announced whether or not he's going to seek re-election. But that hasn't stopped Democratic hopefuls from filling out the largest slate of primary candidates in decades in that state. Already 10 Democrats have filed to run in what will be the very first contested Democrat primary in Wisconsin in three decades. Is this a sign of Democrat enthusiasm for 2022? Or is it a sign that the Democratic Party has become so divided that it's going to be difficult for them to coalesce around one candidate? Stephen Alakara is the CEO and founder of the Millennial Action Project. And at just 31, he's also the youngest candidate on the Senate ballot in Wisconsin. And if he's elected, he'd actually become the youngest Democrat in the US Senate since a man named Joe Biden joined the Senate in 1973. He's not only Politicon's guest this week, he's the very first actively campaigning political candidate to join us here on How the Heck. We will see how many of those are willing to come on after this episode, because campaigns are about controversy and conflict. And if that's the name of the game, how the heck are we going to get along? Hello, Stephen. Hello, Clay. (laughs) Great to see you. (laughs) We both kind of have the same gig, it seems, um, at Politicon because we both have been thrown into this, um, uh, into the ring with some feisty, fiery folks. I moderated between. Anna Kasparian and Tommy Lahren. You moderated between Jenk uh, and Tucker Carlson, right? Is that right? That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Why? Why do you think they asked you to do that? Are you are you especially calm under pressure? Is that what it is? <laughs> I'd
1: like to think so. I just do what they tell me to do.
0: <laughs> oh well, that's kind of what I I do too. I mean, I like to think I'm calm under pressure, but I, you know, uh, probably am not. But. Um, <laughs> I mean, what? Why do you say okay to that? I mean, it's they're going to fight. They're going to argue. Do you? Are you like? Do you enjoy that?
1: I do enjoy it. Maybe in a weird way, I do enjoy it. You know, first of all, uh, I don't know if we're alive or not, but I'll, I'll just jump in here. We're never
0: live, but I think that okay. who knows what? I'm sure <laughs> you should assume it's being recorded.
1: Okay. <laughs> well. I think the slogan of Politicon is entertain democracy, and I think they are really smart in approaching it that way. Because when you bring people with the really different perspectives, I think you have the chance, if it's in a relatively constructive uh, dialogue, to learn something new. And uh, I think if you can have some fireworks, it makes it interesting. Uh, but I remember— Yeah, but yeah, is the that one-
0: constructive?
1: I think there is a balance. You know, my goal with some of those debates with, like, Jenk and Tucker and then also the one with Ben Shapiro, my goal was to make it informative, exciting, and entertaining all at the same time. And, uh, you know, hopefully people felt that way.
0: I mean, I agree. They do a great job of it. But it is still, like, a very fine line between constructive conversation versus um, completely entertaining fireworks to use your word but not very constructive. I did one mm-hmm. I moderated one a few um a few years back uh and you know Michael Knowles I think was the the conservative and there was just no it was showmanship, right? I mean how are, can you do you even believe politicians at all when most of them nowadays seem to be showmen?
1: Most of them are in in Congress uh there'd be a saying there you've got uh, show horses and you've got work horses, and uh-huh. uh you do have some workhorses there unfortunately no one ever hears about them because they kept their head who down. are they <laughs> uh there are a number who we've worked with i think like Haley stevens from uh, michigan uh is a good, good example of a democrat on the republican side uh he recently stepped out but carlos Carbello uh from florida was i think an example of a workhorse uh but you know it's it's tough because- you're not running
0: for house though steven you're running for senate <laughs> who in the senate
1: Who in the Senate? Um, That's a good question. I'm not sure, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are trying to do both. I think Cory Booker is good at both getting attention and being a workhorse at the same time. I think Chris Coons, in my view, is probably the definition of a workhorse. He is uh, definitely a model that I look up to.
0: Okay, so that's what you want to, is that somebody you would pattern yourself after? Is that what you're saying? Like some with that that type, that model?
1: I think there's some similarities there. I think you got to draw, you know, just, I think you and I uh, have a shared passion in music in addition to politics. And, you know, in my music, I try and draw from a lot of different influences. Uh, And I think the same way is true in politics. I think there are a number of different influences I I draw from.
0: Okay, so then let me ask you, we also, okay, so music and we also both ran for, I ran, you're running for office. Um, I, I, I'm going to ask you some of the questions that I dreaded getting when I was running, and I just want to see how you take them. I mean, <laughs> I, it, this might not be fun. I was saying to I was saying to the producers earlier. You, I think, are the very first um, actively running candidate that we've had on this particular show uh, because we started. By the time it was by the time we started it was not we didn't have time to get folks into the 2020 cycle. so you're the first actively running candidate. there's a chance nobody'll come back on after we're, we're finished here. They might all think, <laughs> hell I'm not doing that. why? I mean there are, first of all, I'll say I, I usually do a lot of background research on every guest um, because I want to know going in. I specifically did not read the the bio that the producer sent me on you because you're running for office you should have to tell me who you are but i do know that you're one of what 10 people running in the democrat primary in wisconsin and it's the first contested democrat primary in 30 years in wisconsin so why in the hell if there are 10 people running do you think you have a chance to beat a lieutenant governor, a state treasurer, people who have been the majority leader in the Wisconsin Assembly? Tell me how you can possibly stand out in ten after out of ten candidates.
1: Well, first we like. First of all, uh, I assume we're live now, so thank you so much for having me on oh. <laughs> on the show, Clay. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I think. We always knew it was going to be a competitive primary, and that was one thing that actually attracted us to this race. There is no single person who can clear the field. And the second, more important reason is that I'm seeking to spark a new kind of politics in a in our country, a more inclusive and honest form of politics. And it's the kind... Of leadership that I've been practicing for the last 10 years through the Millennial Action Project. It's this basic idea that in a diverse democracy, we need to be able to have conversations uh, with each other. And by having those conversations, we can lead to uh, better answers and better solutions. And so I felt for a long time in my gut that this is a movement whose time has come. It did take some of the major political figures in Wisconsin who did endorse our campaign, like the former Lieutenant Governor Barbara Laden. Have their encouragement and say, we need a real shift in our politics and you need to seriously consider uh, this US Senate race. So it's a combination. Who else of, has
0: endorsed you of the major uh, people in, in Wisconsin? Who else besides her?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, another big endorsement was actually the Millennial Action Project co chair in the state, former state representative and congressional nominee, uh, Amanda Stuck, uh, some major philanthropists uh, in Milwaukee um, who are more known locally. My. Criteria before jumping in the race was A, can we make an original contribution to this race uh, that we feel that no one else could make? And that's important for our state and country at this time. Uh, And at a time when you have 80% of Wisconsinites, this is a study that recently came out, 80% of Wisconsinites, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, all believe the federal government is fundamentally broken. Uh, having a traditional kind of campaign is not going to work. We're going to do things a little bit differently. The second criteria for me was knowing that my core group of supporters who I've been working with in the state uh, over the last decade would continue supporting uh, my campaign going into this race. And as a result of them saying yes, uh, I knew that was good. And then the third thing was I, as a musician, strongly believe in the value of listening. Uh, and listening with a lot of humility, and so over the summer, we did a series of listening events, and just seeing the incredible amount of momentum and energy on the ground uh, for a message for a mission, uh, those three things led to uh, uh, our, our launch event a couple weeks ago
0: so what makes you different then i mean you, you, you've got all you 've got great answers, but what makes you different? You talk about a different kind of campaign. you talk about diversity, you mentioned the word diversity. Um, in an earlier part of your, um, answer, wh- what, what do you have that no other candidate who's running has? I've
1: passed bipartisan legislation through Congress. Uh, and that's been my experience for the last 10 years. Uh, I think the real job of a U.S. Senator, Which, what, is,
0: what exactly, what exactly, what legislation are you talking about? Cause I so told you that, I didn't research. <laughs> so on one, I'm,
1: most proud of. So just for everyone who's tuning in right now, uh, for the last 10 years, I just recently stepped down as founder and CEO. I ran a group called the Millennial Action Project, and it was all about training a generation of young leaders to enter public service, build coalitions, and get legislation over the finish line that will impact communities uh, that are in need of help right now or traditionally uh, underrepresented. And so the way that would work is we built the first ever bipartisan caucus of young members of Congress called the Future Caucus. We also had chapters in 30 state legislatures. So we're passing state uh, legislative reforms as well. And one of the reforms I was most proud of is after the tragic uh, shooting that we saw in Parkland and those students came to Washington, D.C. to call on the conscience of our nation. There was a sense that we need to do something about gun violence, but there was also a narrative saying It's too polarizing and divisive of an issue. There's no way you can get anything done. And our mentality is uh, everything is on the table. Nothing is too hard to work on. And we've been building relationships in Congress uh, to work on that very issue. Uh, And so I was really proud that we helped to build the first coalition saying that the Centers for Disease Control should be authorized and funded to study gun violence as a public health issue the first Democrat and Republican to sign on to that. We eventually got more people from our caucus to sign on. And because of that coalition, the bill passed. And today the CDC is authorized and funded to do that work. We did similar things on clean energy funding, criminal justice reform, just as an example. The good news is that that bill led to a lot of nationwide momentum. Uh, So you see a lot of state reforms and local reforms uh, to help get more background checks, for example, to make sure that uh, there are red flag laws across the country. Um, and the students, the Parkland students, have told me personally uh, that that bill helped to galvanize the the larger movement. Um, but I also would point to uh, saving a clean energy innovation program that's crucial to combating a climate change that was on the chopping block, uh, and we were able to save it uh, because of the members we had on board. Or here's an even more recent example. Last year, our state, just like many other states, but our state of Wisconsin was very much in the national spotlight for for trying to conduct an election during the pandemic. And there was a sense of we don't have the systems in place to run this effectively. And voting just like gun violence, seen as a very divisive issue. Uh, I'm really proud that we built the First and only coalition of sitting legislators, Democrats and Republicans, uh, to strengthen the absentee voting system, uh, not only to put out PSAs and education, but actually to make sure that uh, registered voters in Wisconsin are mailed an absentee ballot uh, leading up to the election. So those are real changes. And ultimately, the bigger picture here for everyone to consider is do you want you know, you ran for Congress, so you know how much you're dialing for dollars and raising money and members of Congress. Well, I never sp- did,
0: but that's a, that's why I lost probably. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about that. But
1: I, I, think, I think Wisconsinites and the American people are not looking to elect a telemarketer, which is what they often become, uh, not looking to elect a Twitter commentator. Uh, they're looking to elect a legislator who gets things done, and that's my experience.
0: Yeah, but they're not going to know anything about you unless you raise the money to run the ads, right?
1: Well, I think that's a factor for sure. My my view is we need to raise enough money to fuel a grassroots movement across Wisconsin. We're also uh, barnstorming the state. We're going to all seventy two counties. Uh, we're about to head uh, up north to Siren, Wisconsin, uh, in northeastern part of the s- northwestern part of the state. Um, so we've got to get out there. And your grassroots
0: gotta- and your grassroots is built is built in part, I'm assuming, on your Millennial Action um, group, and so and the fact that you've got a a base of support already there. But, I mean, how do you how do you appeal to older Wisconsinites?
1: I think older voters uh, want to know who they can trust, who is honest, and who can deliver a better future for their children and grandchildren. Uh, and that's my job to be able to articulate that, not only uh, from the issues that we're talking about in this race, uh, which I would love to talk about, but also there needs to be a sense that I can connect with this person. And that's where, hopefully, my uh, life experience, uh, growing up in a uh, largely Republican part of the state uh, and a first-generation American, but also um, other areas of uh, fun and commonality, in this case, music, uh, that can help to create the connection and open the door to a larger uh, conversation. And the last thing I'll say on that is, for two years, I hosted a dialogue series across Wisconsin called Red and Blue Dialogues uh, that attracted people across generations. And uh, we're able to draw on that uh, well of support uh, to host these conversations because the people who I've worked with over the years are able to validate and kind of vouch for me as we go into different communities.
0: Okay, so you want to talk about issues in the campaign. I'm not from Wisconsin. I'm from a purple state. So we have some similarities, but we're a long way away. Tell instead of me asking you specific questions about issues, I'll do that in a minute. But what are, in your opinion, the issues that are most important in this race right now?
1: Yeah, I think the oh, I mean, number—literally
0: a year out, more than a year out. Sorry,
1: it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're about a year out from the primary race, uh, primary election. So for me, the number one issue in this race is changing the business model of politics. I think people are wondering why is politics so broken. Why is it that we can't pass climate change legislation? Why is it that proposals that have majority support are not passing? And there are systemic reasons why our politics has become so toxic right now. And I think the root of that is money. So I've promised that my number one piece of legislation in the U.S. Senate will be getting big money uh, out of politics. And that will help in a number of ways. First of all, it will help to ensure that legislators spend their day job legislating as opposed to becoming telemarketers. It means that there will be less of an incentive to communicate in the most negative, demonizing, and even dehumanizing ways to raise money. And on top of that, it means that more working class people are going to be able to run for office. You know, right now, if you want to run for the U.S. Senate, uh, you need to know a lot of millionaires and billionaires. Uh, on top of that, uh, you need to be able to go if this is your full time job, you need to go for about a year plus without making an income. So, we need to make some systemic changes to make sure more normal people are represented in politics and they can be the agenda setters, people who've promised things and they can't actually deliver. So, they're wondering what is systemically going to change about our politics? I mean, we defeated Donald Trump last fall, but our politics, then we had a capital insurrection. Uh, we've had our democracy descend to perhaps an even worse place than things were uh, last year. So people know that unelecting one person doesn't solve all of your problems. And I come out of a space of good government type people uh, who felt like, you know, maybe these issues are just process oriented. Maybe we can't ignite passions and mobilize people around this. Well, that's why I went for a listening tour to ask people. And uh, I will say that this has been the issue that's helped to differentiate us, and it's been a huge uh, source of support. Now, on top of that, uh, we do have an economic opportunity agenda where we uh, talk respond to what we've heard on the ground about the need for more skills training, for example. So I've proposed to make all technical and vocational colleges uh, tuition-free. Uh, up here in r- rural Wisconsin... And pay for it, how? Well, uh, Asking that type of question requires a much larger conversation because uh, why okay have,
0: we're here we can so, we can cut out boring parts if we need to go ahead <laughs> I'm ready for <laughs> it
1: so right now, we have tremendous waste across the the spectrum in terms of spending, and we're our tax system is completely messed up and right now, when people propose uh, cutting taxes, for example, uh, they don't talk about how they're going to pay for it. Um, I would actually propose that in a phased in approach, uh, that Congress should move back to a pay as you go, uh, approach. I think the national debt is a problem for, uh, our generation. So I would look at, for example, all the money that we're wasting in the military industrial complex right now, we just have spent trillions of dollars on a war. We probably should not have stayed in as long as we did in Afghanistan. And I think there are going to be a lot of savings there. Um, but you can't talk about where you're you know, let's say a few hundred billion dollars without looking at the federal budget as a whole and recognizing that over 90% of the federal budget is going to payments on the debt, it's going to defense and military, uh, it's going to social security and Medicare. Um, The investments in our future, like infrastructure, the environment, education, that's like less than 5% of the budget. So I want to make sure that the future part of the budget is a much larger share
0: okay but you're you're not talking about i mean you you're not talking about running in a state where more spending is necessarily overwhelmingly popular i mean ron johnson who is currently in the seat that you're uh, hoping to run in the general election for is certainly not a Freewheeling spender by any stretch, I think a lot of people would consider him if not the most conservative in the Senate, then definitely one of the craziest um, and and I can say that because people know I'm biased um, <laughs> but uh, it's, but does he not represent a good chunk of Wisconsin? I mean, even though I personally think that he's a nut, um, he he does represent a lot of folks i mean there are a lot of people who agree with him you're not talking about running in massachusetts or in washington state or in california or hawaii you're running in a state where yes joe biden didn't win but he also didn't even get 50% of the vote you know and he lost to and he and he beat donald trump who you know i think objectively is one of the worst presidents we've had you're
1: speaking to a systemic problem here which is people who generally win primaries are not the consensus for a larger public that comes out and votes uh, in the general. And unfortunately, we have extremely low voter turnout in primaries, and it's plurality wins as opposed to majority wins, um, which leads to extreme candidates. I think that's partly how Donald Trump uh, won the presidential uh, primary. So Republicans have to deal with their own Trump primary. Uh, Democrats traditionally feel like they have to move to the far left uh, to win the primary, and then they magically move to the center. So my whole frame in politics rejects that whole no- notion. Uh, I believe I- I'm a progressive bridge builder. Uh, I'm someone who says I'm looking out for people who is completely left out, uh, completely left behind, some of our most disenfranchised communities, and I'm open to finding ideas wherever they come from. I'm open to a full conversation conversation listening to the people of Wisconsin uh, to find the best solutions. That's how I I approached Millennial Action Project over over the years. So that type of lane in politics, I admit, does not exist right now, which is why it's sometimes hard for for people to think about. Um, But I truly believe that to be an effective leader in politics, you need to be a coalition builder. And at the same time, I'm proud to say I'll be the most progressive person on getting money out of politics. Both happen at the same time. And I think the best forms of cooperation happens when it's done with your principles. There's this huge misnomer right now, I think a false narrative uh, that says uh, you need to give up your principles and values if you're going to just talk to another person. Uh, That's not real life. Real life is having a conversation, learning something new, and bringing your full self, your full experience uh, to the table. And that's the kind of politics I want to build.
0: Would you vote to get rid of the filibuster?
1: I would vote to get rid of the filibuster if it comes up, and I take this question very seriously, so that's why I also propose filibuster reforms uh, that have a real chance of passing well, what, how are right
0: you gonna, Wait a second. How are you going to reform the filibuster if you've just vote, voted to get rid of it? That's not well, a reform. I, that's an elimination, right?
1: No, but right now there are not enough votes to eliminate it. So, as a U.S. senator, I'll have the responsibility of coming up with reforms that can pass right now. Again, this is my distinction between people who just uh, comment from the cheap seats versus who's going to do the job. Um, and I plan to Why aren't to propose- there enough
0: votes? To- Why aren't there enough votes to get rid of it? Who, I mean, is, uh, what's going? on? Why are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema the t- What are they the two who don't want to get rid of it right now? Who have said they won't do it? What's their problem? Why won't they do it?
1: Well, and there are actually more who are privately opposing it uh, as well. Just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are just two of the people who've gone public with that. But if they put it up to a vote, there will be additional Democrats that don't support uh, getting rid of it. Okay. well, what's their
0: problem? Why not get rid of it?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think they they would be best suited to comment on that. But from what I've read, it seems that uh, they have an interest in making sure that there is a higher threshold on um, legislation passing to ensure that there's uh, bipartisan cooperation. I, I, is that not, you go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, when you look at the filibuster in a historical context that, um, there's really, uh, no reason why we should have it. Uh, I do think that the Senate should be a deliberative body body where most legislation passing, uh, should be bipartisan, uh, which is why I, I fully support the kind of reforms that say, um, uh, look, if you're going to filibuster, that's not, na- more than an email which is what it is right now you need to physically go to the floor speak your mind show your face to the american people and and there should be more accountability uh on the process and then you have to mobilize your own troops uh to keep the filibuster going uh with enough votes so right now it's just way too easy we got to raise the threshold my north star is what are the right answers first and then how do i figure out the politics next and so in my view Uh, the right answer is having a deliberative body uh, in the U.S. Senate. And I believe that you need a U.S. Senator who knows how to get things done, and that includes working on filibuster reform because that's most likely the path to get left and right together. But let me point to Chris Coons as one of the most bipartisan members of Congress who would also likely vote to eliminate the filibuster. So there are a number of U.S. Senators who I think would agree, or take Cory Booker as an approach, as an example. He worked uh honestly uh in an impressive way across the aisle on passing the first step act and a number of people in his own party uh raised issues about that um but he did it because he knew that was really important for the legislation cory booker would vote to eliminate the filibuster and he works in a bipartisan way so that that's my approach as well
0: 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation package too big just right not enough
1: So I think this is actually a continuation of our conversation. I think there are a lot of good pieces of that bill, uh, and I would certainly support it. Um, but again, the behind the scenes work to build coalitions on that issue, uh, hasn't happened. And this gets to the more fundamental problem here. Um, even though, uh, there might be some areas of bipartisan agreement on parts of that legislation, uh, and I know that there's some Democrats involved in, in that bill who don't want Republicans to sign on to it because they want to make sure that it's all about the credit, right? Um, Democrats want to be seen as getting uh, the credit for that bill. Um, and so my approach would be to... Break it into smaller pieces where you can get some support, and then in the areas you can't you you might have to pass it in a partisan way i do but you think can't we have- do that
0: because you can only vote on reconciliation one time with fifty right. fifty votes so they can only do it once, so your plan won't work so what's so so would you vote for three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package, or you would not
1: I would vote for it absolutely, but again we're talking about
0: it's not but it's but it's got a lot of but there are a lot of Progressives, especially in the House, the, the AOCs, the Ilan Omars of the world, Rashida Tlaib, um, who don't think that it goes far enough, that there's not enough in there to, to combat some of the issues that the country yeah. is facing. Why would you vote for something that doesn't do what it necessarily needs to do? I mean, potentially doesn't do enough.
1: Yes. So thank you. This is a question I'm very passionate about. So in my view in the legislative process delivering impact is much more important than not delivering impact, right? So I, I don't I know what that means. So so here's the thing. Right now, when, when, if you take the bipartisan infrastructure package that was, um, among other things, including broadband access, and this question came up to the Senate candidates at a forum we had, and they asked, would you support this bipartisan infrastructure deal? A lot of the other Senate candidates are dancing around it, giving non-answers, and then they came to me, and I said, this is not hard, guys. I would support it because I was just in Keewanee County where they said they have an existential crisis of whether they can even keep people in their county because they don't have affordable and accessible broadband access. So voting yes means we're delivering real impact for people who need help right now. So to your point about the, the reconciliation bill, absolutely, I would support it because that's going to deliver relief. And I think delivering relief is much better than not delivering relief.
0: Okay. Talk about climate change and how it affects Wisconsin specifically, because y'all are pretty damn cold up there. Um, So (laughs) tell me how it affects Wisconsin and what you think needs to be done about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, climate is is the issue that got me into politics in the first place. Um, I think it's a proxy for whether or not our democracy is successful over the long term. Can our democracy create long-term solutions that affects voters that haven't been born yet right now? That's a big question because our democracy is set up really for the short term, uh, election cycle. And there's a lot of incentive to keep kicking the can down the road. So for me, this is a moral uh, challenge and a calling. And here in Wisconsin, uh, first of all, there are huge, uh, huge challenges, um, that our farmers are facing as the climate continues to get weirder for them. Uh, it's increasingly hard for them to plan, uh, their crops. And so you're seeing right now in Wisconsin, we have the highest level of small family farm bankruptcies, uh, in the country. And, uh, so they and the bankruptcies are now leading to alarmingly, alarmingly high, uh, suicide rates as well. So, uh, our farmers are, are, are challenged by that, and the huge opportunity I see is for clean energy technologies. Um, if you go up to the Fox Valley, which is uh, kind of north of Milwaukee, south of Green Bay, uh, you'll see lots of wind turbines there. Uh, that's a huge opportunity. Biomass is a huge opportunity. Um, my role in the U.S. Senate will be to say, let's empower our clean energy entrepreneurs uh, to come up with with new solutions And the the government shouldn't necessarily say which are the best solutions, but the government needs to be on the side of the problem solvers, uh, the people who are trying to cut uh, carbon emission. And I think uh, this is going to be a political winner here in Wisconsin. A majority of Wisconsinites uh, believe we need to take on climate change.
0: Uh, And who said, where's that poll from? Because I want to look it up right now. (laughs) <laughs> where do, where do a, mo- a majority of Wisconsinites think that you need to take, make, take up climate change? Or a majority and, of the people who are voting in your primary and in your polls think you need to take on climate change?
1: <laughs> you, you're welcome to look it up. And you'll see also, um, I can't remember the name of the pollster, but a lot of the best polling does come out of uh, Marquette Law School. So if you look up the Marquette Law School poll, um, they'll you, probably back um, sometime in the last couple years, uh, they did a poll on the issues and you'll see climate change on there. But one of the most interesting things there is to see the generational uh, breakdown as well. In other words, the younger you go, uh, the more support you're going to see for uh, taking on climate action, including this is now a national poll that shows a majority of millennial Republicans uh, believe that we need to take on climate change. So we're in a midterm election cycle now, and uh, the question is going to be who can be an authentic candidate who can build a student movement and uh, my experience for the last 10 years has been organizing young people. Uh, we will have to practice a different form of politics that people can actually believe in uh, to attract young people. And then uh, there needs to be a, uh, an agenda that's speaking to young people as well. And I think the issues that I have a successful track record working on, whether it is climate or gun violence or criminal justice reform, are going to be issues that speak uh, directly to young people. And then finally, uh, I'm actually going out to the college campuses, uh, and, and we're, we're going to have a strong organization.
0: No one else is doing that?
1: Uh, not yet, to my knowledge.
0: I mean, you're not you're not the you you are the youngest in the race, but you're not the only young person in the race, right? I mean, I, 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 to to be kind to you, because I understand, and to your communications director, whoever that is, um, I won't name the person again. But there is certainly someone else in the race already who is a statewide elected official who's only what two, three years older than you, thirty four years old, um, and and has won a statewide race. How do you differentiate yourself there?
1: The way we're differentiating ourselves is, is having a positive message, first of all. Uh, everyone else is running uh, largely a race that says, I'm not Ron Johnson. And my, uh, first of all, we don't even know if Ron Johnson's running for re-election. Re- but my view is, it's just the easiest thing in politics just to say what you're against and just demonize other people. Uh, In my view, the more important approach is to say, what are you for? What are you actually going to do uh, in this position? And how are you going to deliver for people? We're really the only campaign that's speaking to that right now.
0: Yeah, but nobody's, but, but, the, but here's the bottom line. Negative ads are disgusting. Everyone hates them. They get sick and tired of seeing them, but they are the only thing that works. So, what, why not vote for Mandela Barnes? Why not vote for uh, Sarah? I don't even know how to say her last name, Godlewski. <laughs> See, I'm sorry. I told you I'm, I'm looking these things up because I didn't want to do this before I talked to you. Why not vote for the state treasurer or the guy who runs the Milwaukee Bucks? Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, why not vote for them, but instead vote for Stephen?
1: Well, first of all, I'm friends with all three of them. Uh, and uh, so our, the reason to vote for us is to have a... Us?
0: What do you mean us?
1: To vote for our
0: Why vote for you instead of Alex Lassery?
1: So the reason to vote for me, and when you're voting for me, you're really supporting a movement of people on the ground, uh, is to ch- fundamentally change uh, the culture of our politics. And I'm the first one to say I can't do it by myself. Um, I'm, our campaign is merely a, a vessel, uh, a vehicle to channel the desires of a lot of people who feel uh, disenfranchised, um, there's a report that More in Common put out called um, uh, uh, "Political Tribes," and they describe a voter demographic called the exhausted majority. You know, most people are exhausted by politics right now. You know, and this is an existential moment. You know, I've done human rights work abroad. Political violence is something you might see in other countries. You know, I've worked with people from Sudan and Yemen and places like that. Now, political violence is now real in this country. Uh, it's in front of us. And so if we don't ask ourselves the hard questions of how are we going to do things differently, um, then our democracy will not succeed over the long term. My view is that there is... Reasons to be hopeful, uh, but we do need to make those tough decisions right now and elect people who are going to be more bridge builders as opposed to um, just uh, uh, Twitter uh, social commentators. Listen,
0: all of these things I- – I'm not being a hypocrite here because all of these things are music to my ears, and people who listen to this show know that I agree with all that all that stuff, but – as much as I agree with it and as admirable as I think it is that you feel the same way, I don't think you'd find anyone in this country who thinks that the highest quality food available to them is at the McDonald's drive through Yet, it's still the largest <laughs> restaurant chain in the country because it's the easiest one to go to when mm-hmm. you're hungry and you're in a, in a rush. So my point is, you're right. Everyone believes that politics is disgusting and they hate it. But at the end of the day, they remember the ads that told them such and such had an affair with so-and-so and this person voted to release this child abuser and they abused again. So how are you, you gonna be able to avoid that?
1: Well, first of all, I, I love your McDonald's analogy. I think that's, that's really on point. And so look, when I first got involved in politics, I had a close mentor who said, everyone you're going to meet in politics can fit into one of two categories, people who want to be something and people who want to do something. And unfortunately, the number of people are in the latter category is much fewer than in the number uh, in the former category. And from all the years I've been involved in politics, that has definitely been true, uh, definitely true. And so at the end of the day, we need to make a choice, and I have made already made my choice in this campaign. Um, are you going to appeal to the darkest impulses of human behavior, which has been an an effective political strategy since the founding of this country? Or are you going to appeal to, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature? And that's just a choice you you have to make. A number of people get into politics who maybe have some good principles but they lose their soul by going into the dark side of politics. And uh, they have to live with themselves as they lose their soul and wonder what the hell did they do um, after their time in politics is up. Or uh, you can have a more principled approach that says, I'm going to try and move people. I'm going to try and, as, um, uh, as, as one of my mentors once said, call people to a higher order of politics. You know, that is rare. It doesn't come... All the time, but if you think something's important enough, uh, it's, it's ought to you ought to try it. You know, um, my my favorite novel is The Alchemist, and it talks about when you walk in your purpose, uh, the universe starts to conspire for your success. But to find your purpose, you often have to take a big leap of faith into a risky endeavor. And uh, I'm not doing this because it's easy. Um, if there were traditional politicians who can run our democracy the right kind of way, I probably would be trying to become a professional musician and getting your advice on that industry. Uh, but you know, instead, not,
0: I wouldn't have any better advice there either. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but instead, um, I feel a calling right now, a moral calling to uh, give this everything I've got.
0: Well, I can't wait to see how many people in Wisconsin you relate to personally um, by quoting the alchemist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because something tells me it's not highly read um, all it's over late, that late. state. <laughs>
1: You should you should come out to Wisconsin. I I would love to introduce you. To I've some been people. to
0: Wisconsin. I think I've been to, I've been to Green Bay. I've been to Appleton. I've been to Madison. I've been to Milwaukee. I've been all over wow. Wisconsin. Beautiful, what took you out here? Beautiful state. What took oh, you well, out here? You know, I used I used to do a little singing. Um. So occasionally, you know, we go different places when we do that. But nice, um, nice. beautiful beautiful state. But you know, much like North Carolina, I don't necessarily. I don't know. I don't feel like The Alchemist is the most relatable of all books, but give it a shot. Um, We've got questions from listeners. We've got some really good ones that have come in. And lucky for both of us, the producers have pulled one from your hometown and one from mine. Nina from Madison, Wisconsin asks, our state's schools feel like they're on the brink. How do we bring them back?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a huge issue right now. First of all, people are trying to make sure they can go into their schools. They're having a huge debate over masks right now. And then uh, school funding is a huge issue as should well. We ba-
0: should, we, should, we, should we mandate masks in schools?
1: I think we probably should, but it should be the decision of local school boards. Um, and should we
0: mandate them everywhere, not just in schools? Should we mandate them in public places?
1: I think it depends on on the COVID data. You know, if you are having some spikes, then uh, the public health officials would recommend uh, requiring masks, and then government even for vaccinated should... people. Um, it depends. I, I, I would follow the advice of local officials. For example, there's a big music festival here uh, called Summerfest, um, and I think they're doing it the right way. They're you know they're a private organization that is requiring people to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. So I think the real incentive for people shouldn't necessarily... And then do they have
0: to wear a mask when they go in?
1: They do not. No, no. Uh, And so I think the real incentive here should be, hey, if you want to go watch a movie or go to a concert, you need to get vaccinated. I think that's going to be a much better motivation for people than a lot of government mandates.
0: Okay, so back to Nita's question about schools, because all she said was schools feel like they're on the brink. So I have to imagine that you know more about the situation with schools in Wisconsin than I do. So what's she talking about? What's on the brink?
1: If, if I'm guessing, I mean, first of all, fortunately, uh, Governor Tony Evers, who's a Democrat, has helped to increase uh, school funding. So we're headed in a better direction there. But the real acute issue we're seeing on the ground here um, is the debate around uh, masks um, in, in elementary schools, for example. And a lot of people are, you know, I did a local event in my hometown of Brookfield. Um, and, and, and I asked people, how did you decide to get involved in politics most of them got involved because of what they're seeing on their school boards. Like, that is their, their big issue right now. So my guess is she's referring to the masks.
0: Okay. Jason from Raleigh. What? We don't, we don't get many from Raleigh. Um, <laughs> my generation is buried in debt, and prices keep going up. Is there a fix? I don't know what generation Jason is in, but Raleigh's got a lot of colleges. He's young, mm-hmm. so I'm going to mm-hmm. assume, Jason, you're, you know— He's a, he's a millennial, perhaps himself. Um, if whatever generations, all of those people who are buried in debt is there a fix?
1: Well, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet. Like I think that we need to address the root of the problem, which is you have a lot of young people going to colleges, racking up hundreds of thousands of debt that they never have a prayer of of paying back. And so there are there are some proposals out there for just forgiving everything. And, Good idea and I actually. Huh?
0: Good idea or bad then? I, I just forgiving think it doesn't...
1: Like, I would, like, for example, I see President Biden forgiving uh, student debt for students who attended some for-profit colleges. Like, if there's some predatory um, practices going on, I think that there could be... There's a rationale for forgiving that debt. But doing it writ large um, just means you're passing the uh, issue down maybe 10 years, and then we'll see another student debt bubble. Um, so for everyone tuning in right now, just realize student debt now in our country is larger than credit card debt, um, and so this is a huge amount of money, and if, if we don't address the root issue around costs and whether people are able to make uh, smart decisions and whether there is a real return on investment, uh, then this problem won't be solved. For people who currently have debt, one of the big things I love and, and fully support um, that I think should be further expanded is uh, public service loan forgiveness. So, if you decide to become a teacher, or you work for a food bank, or you become a nurse in a rural area, um, then I do think some form of loan forgiveness there, maybe after ten that years. That would require or so.
0: people. Some that would require people to some of some people to change jobs to leave a good job they have right now and go into a completely different field, perhaps not get the job back that they had. Is that is it fair to ask people to do that?
1: Well, the people who are really struggling right now are in fields that are not paid very well. So if they decide to go in public service... Uh, it's not necessarily They, the won't, they still
0: won't be paid very well. <laughs> they still won't be
1: paid very well, but at least they'll be able to pay back their student loans as a fixed uh, percentage of their total income. So it would be a more reasonable uh, amount of money. But I think the higher education industry needs to really relook at this whole system. I remember when, when I was going to college, you know, uh, you know 10, 10 plus years ago, um, there was this kind of mentality of, you know, just go to whatever college you want to go to. Don't worry about how to pay for it. I think that's wrong. I do think we need some personal responsibility there uh, and make sure we're making wise decisions.
0: Should college be free? Should, should X number of years, like Bernie Sanders has, has um, proposed himself, should a certain number of years of college be free? Do we need to make free education go to grade 13, 14, 15, 16?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to look at. But in my view, the smartest investments for society right now are for people who are coming from working class backgrounds and need uh, skills training. And so, I, so think that's the te- no. I think technical and vocational colleges is where you have the smartest investment. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, the university. I still university- couldn't tell
0: if that was a yes or a no, though.
1: Well, because it requires explanation and context. Right now, the, the public higher education system, if you just make that fully tuition-free, you're subsidizing a lot of rich kids who are going to college. So do you think that's a wise investment to make? But my larger point here is to say that you know, if you're going to a traditional four-year college, you know, certainly that's helping to uh, create economic mobility for people who need that. But also you have a lot of uh, rich kids who are going to those schools as well. And I think that... Um, our higher education got a lot system of poor in- kids
0: going to those schools too, right?
1: Yeah, I just acknowledge that. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think our higher education system as a whole right now is actually um, stratifying our our population because it is not inclusive enough and it's not accessible enough uh, for a lot of uh, working class and low income people.
0: I I mean I enjoyed doing this. I mean th- you you'd be surprised, and we you know the Politicon folks can tell you later how much I actually do agree with you on versus how much I was just giving you shit on for fun. (laughs) Um, But I, listen, I appreciate the conversation because you're right. I I do. I do appreciate the fact that you acknowledge a lot of things deserve far more than you can put on a bumper sticker, right? Mm -hmm. They deserve and need more conversation and more discussion and more detail and, you know, you've got to get into the finer points like we were just talking about with education. You know, it's it's an easy thing to say college should be free for everyone, and that's probably great on the stump. But when you get down to it, you know, it, it's not really that great an idea. Whether or not candidates are brave enough to say that on a campaign trail, you know, is, is debatable because what people remember is Stephen said no to that answer. I mean, I'm not saying you did say no to that answer, but but people will, will remember not the details and not the weeds that you got into, but simply the top line. So, you know, being willing to to be a little weedsy is is brave. And if you're willing to get weedsy and not worry about the fact that, you know, sometimes you're not going to answer the question that was asked you, <laughs> or sometimes you're going to have to answer it in a way that's gonna piss off a lot of people because they won't read past the headline, then I you know, I wish you marvelous luck. But I, I do wonder how you expect to go through in another entire year differentiating yourself from the nine other people so far who've jumped into the can- to the race. And I know I've asked this before, nine other people you've you've you are running against so far without having a a clearly defined bumper sticker answer for some things
1: well first of all is if that's an endorsement i'll, I'll fully accept it but no the it's not an all- endorsement <laughs> it's it's me i'm same. not
0: endorsing anybody in this but i'm saying i'm impressed by the fact that you seem to at least today have had the the guts to you know answer Be long honest. form hey. but this is an hour answer long form you didn't answer everything directly still but you answered long form and gave me your reasons for not um but this is an hour, right? And you don't get that on, you know, WISC when you get two minutes max to answer a question. So, you sure. know, fi- how, figuring out how to be honest in your words, be direct or frank, but do it in 30 seconds I don't know how you do that, and I wish you great luck at it.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate the advice, and I love the podcast format because it does allow uh, conversations to breathe a bit more. Uh, so I'm a big fan of this kind of conversation. And the second thing is, you know, you asked, how are you going to spend the next year? I don't know how candidates spend a whole year not being themselves. You know, I, and, and, I think, and then people wonder, like, why are there so many fake people running for office right now? Well... I see why that is, because there's a lot of pressures, and you point to a number, uh, to not be honest, to not be authentic. And I told my team at the beginning of this, uh, if we're running this race, we're going to do it the right way, and I'm going to be myself. And uh, I think a number of politicians who have done well um, are people who've been themselves. And uh, uh, I think you, like me, were unusual personalities in many ways, and uh, we're just going to put that out there and have fun with it.
0: Well, I mean, I I, I asked the question about how you're going to spend the next year differentiating yourself, not what you're going to do for the next year. I was going to say differentiating yourself, because I do know that the the horrible thing about primaries, and I've always said over and over, I'd run the general election every day of the year, 10 times over. I'd be happy to do it. Did you tell me that the Wisconsin primary is a year away? Do your primaries happen in late summer, early fall?
1: That's right, August. Okay, of next year
0: I will never fucking move to Wisconsin. That is for <laughs> sure because there is nothing worse than a primary. I, I was in good spirits during my general election campaign. I was fine with what, I mean, I needed to raise money. I was in a very, very, very red district. And so there's all of that, but there's nothing worse. And there was nothing more heart wrenching than a primary campaign because you do typically agree with most of the people who you're running against in a primary on policy issues. There's not much daylight. Oftentimes in my particular campaign, we had a very big generational difference. My opponent was, um, very, very experienced and very very establishment and much older and I was clearly not establishment clearly not had, didn't have the same type of experience much younger was able to bring attention. I was able to differentiate myself in so many ways, and for so long, I was beating him by forty points until stephen those nasty ads started coming out and he Mm -hmm. closed a 40 point gap with that dirty ad in a matter of two weeks. And I'm not mad at him for it at all because he was doing what it took to win. But the problem is primaries are always personal. They always are personal because you don't have that many policy differences. So given that you now have a year in front of you, of having to, God, I feel so badly for you. Ours was in March. Um, um, You have a year in front of you of having to race, run a race against a lot of people who you say you're friends with and who you probably do agree with and who I assume you would vote for if you didn't win the primary. That's what politics has become. It has to be, Fighting, disagreeing, telling you why I'm better than that person, telling you why that person is worse than me and you should vote for me instead of them. So if that is the whole system, if the system is set up that way and you're going to live in it for the next year, Stephen, how the heck are we going to get along?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll just, you, we'll start with, or we'll end with where we started. You mentioned uh, Russ Feingold and campaign finance reform. The story of Russ Feingold In 1992, which was the last competitive Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate, people laughed at him when he jumped in. There was a much more prominent multi-term member of Congress and a uh, self-funding billionaire type of person. And those two just trashed each other uh, leading into the primary. And Russ Feingold focused on his message. He was the happy warrior. He was authentic. He created these home movies because he didn't have any money to do legitimate ads. And uh, in the last month, he went from 7% to winning uh, with 70% in the primary. We have to start respecting each other. We need to have people willing to run for office right now uh, who do uh, call us to a better form of conversation. And I think the real divide today in America is not between left versus right. It's people who are pro-conversation uh, or an anti-conversation. And by extension, I think the divide is people who are pro-democracy and people who are anti-democracy. And so we need to build this movement who want conversations, who want to live in a democracy. And if more people step up off the sidelines and and serve that mission, uh, then we will get along together
0: and we will have a democracy to pass on to our grandchildren.